is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. A microscopic pest that can affect the health of crops and reduce yields has been found in more locations around the Northern Territory. I'll give you the latest info on guava root knot nematode in just a moment. Also today, let's talk about buffalo. We all know how much damage feral buffalo do to the NT's environment. So what if people got paid carbon credits for culling them? That's really exciting because not only can people make money through this, but the ecological benefits could be massive. And it's no longer grown in the Northern Territory. And around Australia, its acreage is on the decline. So what is happening to Australia's poppy industry? You'll find out today on The Country Hour. We're broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC. And g'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. First up today, let's talk about biosecurity. You might remember last year, a microscopic pest called guava root knot nematode. It was found in Australia for the first time. And where was it found? It was right here in the Northern Territory on a handful of properties, including one commercial farm. Now, this exotic pest, it can stunt plant growth. It can affect yields and around the world has caused problems for farmers, especially those growing sweet potatoes. Our guest today is Dr Ann Walters, who is the Territory's Chief Plant Health Officer. Uh, and this exotic nematode, it's been found in some other locations of the Northern Territory. What can you tell us? Yeah, so at the moment we have seven infected premises in the Northern Territory. Um, the premises are located at Middle Point, Malak, Palmerston in Rapid Creek, at Anula, Lianya and on Croker Island. So you can see that it's quite geographically widespread, even if we haven't got a lot of properties that we've identified at the moment. Croker Island is, that is, that's quite out there. What's your thoughts on yeah, how this nematode trying- gets to Croker? Yeah, we're doing a lot of work around trying to, trying to understand how the nematode might be moving around in the Northern Territory. We haven't been able to identify one clear pathway at this point in time. Um, and as you can imagine, there's lots of different ways that a nematode that's microscopic that lives in the soil could move and, you know, things like machinery moving around, even people's footwear it can move in, as well as the movement of plants and soil and plant materials. So there's lots of different avenues and at the moment we're just doing a lot of investigation to try and work out why, where the nematode is and why it's where it is. And just on croaker, sorry, was it affecting any uh, fruit and veg crop in particular over there? Um, I can't tell you on the top of the top of my head. I'm sorry, Matt. Um, I'd have to look into that one. The one commercial farm uh, that has this nematode, um, have you been chatting to them and, and got a sense of what their experience has been like thus far? Yeah, look, um, the team has been out and obviously is engaging closely with this grower. The grower is has been fantastic, really supportive, um, really keen to be engaged in any research to better understand what we need to do to manage the pests, which is fantastic. Um, obviously, we found it on cucumbers at that particular property and there was some, some damage of that um, particular crop. And so we are working really hard to work out how we can actually manage this the this particular um, pest on this particular property. 
Is that farm doing anything in particular at the moment to try and reduce the risk? No, look, like like I said, at the moment we're working out what we might need to do, what the opportunities are, um, what research we might be able to do. We are really interested in looking at what um, questions we might arise and how we can best support industry. And it's not just the Northern Territory now dealing with this, is that right? Yeah, that's correct, Matt. So on the 20th of December, um, guava root knot nematode was also detected during routine nematode diagnostic sampling in soil that was from a tomato plant collected at Dimbula in far north Queensland. And so now you can see that it's very geographically widespread, both in the Northern Territory and in Queensland. And obviously, given the biology of this pest, the fact that it's microscopic means that um, this creates uh, some serious questions about whether it would be um, potentially able to be eradicated if we went down that path. Is there a sense that maybe this microscopic pest has actually been in Australia for a long time? Yeah, we are doing also doing some work in that space. Um, it's interesting that you ask that. So one of the things that we have done is sent some of our historical samples that date back 20 years to CSIRO in Canberra for DNA extraction to determine if the pest has potentially been in the Northern Territory longer than the 12 to 18 months that we suspect it's been at the moment. Um, the problem with this particular um, approach is that long-term storage of these sorts of um, samples in formalin and formalin and other other solutions means that often they're not able to be um, utilised in the way that we're looking for, um, but but we are making efforts to try and understand whether it has been here for longer. When it was initially found in the Territory but hadn't showed up in any other jurisdiction, I guess there were a few murmurs of potentially some interstate trade restrictions, but now that's been found in Queensland, has that put uh, those type of talks to bed? Um, at the moment, there's um, a lot of discussion, I guess, nationally about, you know, firstly, um, eradication potential and management options for the pest going forward. So no decision has been finalised at this point um, in relation to that. And I guess once that has been determined, there will be discussions about, you know, what what entry conditions or movement restrictions might be put in place and whether they're even, you know, feasible. So there's a lot of work to be done at this point in time um, from other jurisdictions to determine what the approach will be. Has there been anywhere on the planet that has successfully eradicated this little nematode? Uh, not to my knowledge. Uh, it's an interesting question. Nematodes are notoriously difficult to eradicate just because of the nature of the nematode. This particular pest, um, the research tells us that it can live in the soil for up to 13 months after um, the host plants have been removed. Mm. So that means that you can imagine uh, the efforts that would be required to remove the host plants, treat the soil, and then leave it fallow for a period of up to 13 months, which obviously contributes to really significant issues with eradication. I thought it could have been just impossible, but eradication is still being spoken of, is it, in the meetings that you're involved in? Oh, look, based on the nature of the pest and the means that have spread and all of the detections that are now very geographically spread in both the Northern Territory and Queensland, it's considered that it would be very difficult to successfully eradicate uh, guava root knot nematode in Australia. I'm not going to pretend that that's not the case, um, but at the moment it's under active consideration. Okay. And for farmers listening to this and, and hearing about this pest that is starting to pop up in all types of areas, what would you like them to know? 
We're just really encouraging um, growers to implement good biosecurity practices to prevent further spread and particularly spread onto their property. Just we're asking people to think about anything that they're bringing onto their property. If it's got soil attached to it, there's a risk that you could spread this p particular pest onto your property. You know, don't bring things on if you if there's any concern. Make sure that you practice um, good biosecurity measures. Um, in terms of other members of the community as well as our growers, if people do have a suspect or any concerns, we're encouraging people to contact the exotic plant pest hotline, which is one eight hundred zero eight four eight eight one. And people are never going to see this pest with their own eyes, but I guess you're just you'd be reporting the symptoms. Would that be Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. That's correct. So above ground symptoms, and that's basically your plants are starting to not look very healthy. They're starting to struggle and, and then is a good time for us to get involved. And if it isn't that, that's great. We can give you some advice. But if it is, we can also help to reduce the spread to other areas of your property. How concerned do you think farmers should be about this? How I think that farmers should be concerned and should be um, implementing good biosecurity practices on their property if they have any of the hosts that are likely to be affected and that includes things like chilies, cucumbers, capsicum, pumpkin, snake beans, sweet potatoes, zucchini, eggplants and tomatoes in particular. Um, if you if growers do have any concerns, please contact us as soon as possible. Um, but like I said, just try not to bring anything onto the property that may potentially be infected with this nematode and, and make sure your biosecurity practices are in place. Thanks for your time today. Pleasure. Yeah, g'day, it's Greg Owens here. Uh, recently retired from NT Farmers, but still hoping to be a big part of our farming community in the north. And you're listening to the NT Country Hour. The Australian Transport Safety Bureau has released its prelim report into a fatal helicopter crash that happened in East Arnhem Land back in November. I'll share the details of that with you in a moment. But first, let's have a song. The Grammys were on this week. Well done to Willie Nelson, who took home the Grammy for Best Country Album. Willie also won the Grammy for Best Country Solo Performance. And the Grammy for Best Country Song, it went to Cody Johnson for this tune called Till You Can't. That is Cody Johnson, the track Till You Can't. That won the Grammy for Best Country Song. It's a quarter to one. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Now, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau has released a prelim report into a helicopter crash last year which killed pilot Norm Fisher, a man well known in the NT's cattle, buffalo and crocodile industries. Oliver Chaseley from ABC News has been looking at this report. Uh, Oliver, what can you tell us? Uh, so what we've got uh, from the Australian Transport and Safety Bureau is a preliminary report. They haven't uh, released their sort of full findings of uh, their investigation, but what they have established is the timeline for sort of what happened in the lead up to this crash. What they've found is that at the conclusion of uh, a buffalo muster uh, south of Ramanguning in the Arafura Swamp, the pilot has around six o'clock... Um, flown from the end of the buffalo muster to to a second location expecting to pick up another member of the muster 
that person had already gone on to base camp. So the pilot has then flown to base camp at about 6.20 to 6.50-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, once they've landed at the mustering camp, they were the first ones there. And what's happened then is... About 15 minutes later, about 20 minutes later after 7 o'clock, which is sort of around twilight, is in that really sort of dark period just after the sun goes down, uh, the helicopter has then started up again, and then a minute later the tracking has been turned off on the helicopter. Uh, Members of the muster uh, became concerned about the pilot uh, at around 9 o'clock and did a bit of a land-based search, uh, couldn't find anything, and then the following day found the wreckage uh, at about, uh, well, about six kilometres. Uh, from that mustering camp. From the from the mustering camp, yeah. Right. So the ATSB saying that this crash likely occurred after dark. Yes, well, they haven't uh, been able to establish exactly when because of the, the fact that the flight recorder has been turned off, but the fact that it was turned off at 7.20 and that the the helicopter was found the next day mm-hmm. uh, suggests that, yes, it did occur. Report goes on to say that the pilot did not hold a night visual flight rules rating despite having more than 6,000 hours of aviation experience in the logbook. This is just an, an early report, a prelim report. When are we expecting the, the final results here, Oliver? Well, so there's a fair bit of uh, information that the ATSB has to get through, including pilot records, medical information, aircraft maintenance and flight records, uh, and some witness information and meteorological data. So once they can get through all of that, they haven't given us an exact time of date when that final report will be released. But once they get through all that other information, then obviously the final report mm. will be finished. People can read more about this online right now if they go searching for ABC News. Thanks for that, Oliver. Thank you. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. Let's turn our attention to the resources sector now. The Central Australian Frack-Free Alliance has launched a legal challenge in the Supreme Court against government approval that was given to gas company Tamboran to drill and frack wells in the Beedaloo Basin. Victoria Ellis joins me in the studio. What uh, can you share with us, Victoria? G'day, Matt. Well, gas company Tamboran was given approval to drill and frack 12 exploratory wells in the Beedaloo last November, but the Central Australian Frack-Free Alliance, or CAFA, is now challenging that approval. CAFA is going to ask the NT Supreme Court to review the decision of NT Environment Minister Lauren Moss to approve the project's environmental management plan. Mm. CAFA will argue that the approval was invalid because Minister Moss failed to adequately consider the environmental impacts of the project. Right, so which environmental impacts does CAFA feel need to be considered in all of this? Well, in particular, CAFA is going to argue that the Minister should have considered the climate impacts of future gas projects that this exploration will enable 
and it's arguing that this exploration is the first step in any future gas projects. But the International Energy Agency said we can't have any new gas projects if the world is to stand a chance of reaching zero net carbon emissions by 2050 and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees and avoid the worst impacts of climate change. CAFA spokesperson Hannah Eakin said the minister is laying the grounds for potentially thousands of fracking wells to be drilled in the NT. Okay, so this challenge has been launched today. It'll be an interesting one to watch. Thanks for that, Victoria. No worries. Thank you. G'day, this is John Little here. I'm from Milsenjari Outstation out on the Ernest Giles and you're listening to the ABC Country Hour. On a Tuesday lunchtime, I trust you are well. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Hey, remember when the Northern Territory had a trial crop of poppies? Remember that story? It was around 2015, 2016. Poppies were being trialled out on Tipperary Station under a centre pivot. It was an interesting story, good fun, but unfortunately, I guess, it was one of those crops that came and went. Now, the main production area for this narcotic crop has long been Tasmania. That's the home of poppies. But the numbers are not stacking up very well there either, it would seem. As Meg Powell reports, Tassie's poppy production has now fallen to its smallest size since the 1980s, due in some part to local flooding, but also a global oversupply of painkillers. After booming to nearly 30,000 hectares in 2012, Tasmania's poppy industry has steadily dwindled. But this year's crop is even smaller than planned, says Poppy Growers Tasmania President Michael Nichols. It's, it's been a very tough season, probably the toughest almost on record. Um, we've probably got our smallest area that was successfully established. I think there's around 3,500 hectares between the two companies, which is probably the smallest since the 80s. Uh, there's a lot of ground that got waterlogged with a very wet spring we ended up with. There was a lot of redrills and a um, lot that, that failed and a lot of people have got, you know, sort of 10 to 15% of their paddocks that have got big bare patches where the waterlogging or, or just the wet conditions didn't allow the poppies to strike. Goodness. So it's double. It's a double whammy, you're saying, smaller volumes of poppies and also the, the weather has made yeah, it challenging. Yeah, yeah, no. So um, there were I think originally there was around four and a half thousand hectares that were penciled in to be planted, and there's, you know, there was, there was a good uh, volume that got cancelled because of the wet weather, and and the, another volume that got um, washed out. So wow. it's been a bit of a bit of a nightmare season. What have you been hearing from farmers about that? How are they feeling? Well, I think um, farmers are pretty resilient when it comes to weather, because that's probably the main thing that controls our lives. It's just one of those things, like it's not just poppies that are being affected by this weather. There's a whole range of crops, you know, it, it made for late potato planting. It's just the wet conditions and extra fungicide or extra fungal diseases that can uh, come from these conditions make, make growing anything a challenge. What does that mean in terms of opiate supply? Will that cause some sort of effect in the market? Not, not really, because the, the whole issue with the, the, the opiate industry is that there's just this massive supply of product from, you know, still still working through from the COVID times because uh, elective surgeries got cancelled. That means that, um, you know, 30 to 40% of the products were used in recovery from elective surgeries. 
and because they were cancelled around the world, those those products weren't used uh, for pain management. So therefore, the stockpile grew, and and there's a good, you know, probably 18 to to two and a half years worth of of product just sitting in sheds to be processed. So definitely no no issue with stocks, and I, I think that also goes. You know that that's why there is a, a smaller planting or a smaller planting that was planned this year, and it's just been uh, compiled with this uh, very wet spring. And how were prices this year? Well, prices have, were the same as they were for the 2021 season. Although the the Sun Pharmaceuticals had lowered their price for for Fairbane, but yeah, we're we're we will be in negotiations with the with the two companies to to see if we can try and secure some some better prices into the future um, or at least, uh, you know, in an upward direction to try and offset some of those increasing costs that the, the farmers are taking. Peter Radford is a contract poppy harvester. For him, less hectares present a different set of challenges. Years ago, we used to have, say, for an average, we used to have about eight to 9,000 hectares historically with the poppy company that we work with and they had 11 machines. Now we've got 14 or 15 machines to do 4,000 hectares. Um, it, it's, it's tough in the sense that um, the machines, just to get them out of the door, cost you X amount of dollars whether you're going to do 10 hectares or, or 1,000 hectares. The biggest issue is, and we'll cover this topic again, is getting the good people involved to be able to drive the machines. Once upon a time they'd go for six weeks and earn very good money for six weeks and they'd leave their normal job or come off the farm to do that. Whereas nowadays, um, if you're only going to do 10 days or 12 days work, it's not really an inviting situation for somebody to come and be involved with it. And down the track we need younger people to get involved with it, but there's no incentive there for that. Uh, Machinery hasn't really changed much over the last, you know, 15 years really like it's 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 there if down the track we end up doing 10,000 hectares a year you know where where is the incentive for um, development of new gear you know it's it's the money's not there to do that at the moment so farmers we'll, we'll look after and get them off off as quick and as timely as we can but uh, every year's can be have its challenges and this year it might be rain or it might be wind wind is not a friend of poppies um so time will tell. Both Mr Radford and Mr Nichols believe poppies still have a future in Tasmania. Like there is no better products to use for pain management than the products that are derived from the poppies. So the, they are a product that, that are still needed and will be needed into the future. That's President of Poppy Growers Tasmania, Michael Nichols, speaking to Meg Powell. A tough time for the poppy industry in Australia. The quest for the Big Brass Mug continues on the new season of Harquiz, award-winning comedian Tom Gleeson is throwing down the gauntlet to some new contestants. You made that sound really creepy. And challenging some more unusual expert subjects. That's when you thought things wouldn't get weirder. Sam, colonoscopies is your expert. The new season of Hard Quiz. Nothing's weird on this show, mate. Back Wednesday night on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Now, if you missed the Country Hour yesterday, then you missed our conversation with livestock analyst Simon Quilty, who shared his concerns about Meat and Livestock Australia's latest forecast on the size of the nation's cattle herd. He said MLA's numbers were grossly overstated and made little sense. I find them deeply concerning simply because I don't believe them. They have overstated the size of the Australian herd by 3 million head 
um, per year over the next three years. And simply, those animals do not exist. Now, that full interview with Simon Quilty, that's up on our website right now if you search for NT Country Hour. And he goes through in a lot of detail why he thinks the MLA numbers are wrong. In a statement we've received from MLA, a spokesperson for that organisation says, while we disagree with Simon Quilty's comments and stand by our numbers and methodology, we would like to correct something he said in comparing our numbers with those of the ABS. The ABS do not include any enterprises under $40,000 turnover or profit when calculating its stock numbers. The MLA does, which partly explains the difference in herd numbers that were cited by Simon Quilty. As I said, if you missed that interview yesterday with Mr Quilty, it is up on our website. You can just listen to it in a separate section if you search for NT Country Hour. G'day, I'm Chris Howie from Bindaroo Passes in the Douglas Daily. I never get to listen to the Country Hour out here because we don't have radio reception, so I download the podcast at breakfast and listen to it throughout the day. And you're listening to the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. G'day to everyone in the Douglas Daily. It is estimated that there's 200,000 feral buffalo in the Northern Territory, the vast majority, of course, in Arnhem Land. There are culling programs from time to time, but they're expensive. You can only do so much. But what if people and organisations were paid to get rid of buffalo? What if you could earn valuable carbon credits by getting rid of feral buffalo? An interesting idea. CDU's been taking a look at this, and we'll talk about it in a moment here on the Country Hour. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon, and Beck, the Bureau has just issued a severe thunderstorm warning for the Barclay region. What can you tell us? Yeah, that's right. Um, so we've just had some storms start to develop near the Queensland border in the southeast Barclay district uh, that uh, yeah could produce some heavy rain. Um, so if you're in that part of the territory, so around Alperulam, for example, um, yeah, just be aware that um, any heavy rainfall that could affect roads and things in the area. Um, so it's south of Avon Downs at the moment. Mm. Um, but there is a risk of, of further thunderstorms developing further west um, in the Barclay. So, yeah, just keep an eye out for, for any more warnings that come out. Yeah, that this is a warning that may be around for several hours is the language. So the, the ingredients yeah. are, are right in that part of the Territory. Yeah, that's right. So um, we're just getting that heating um, that helps those those uh, clouds start to develop and, and turn into thunderstorms. So at, at the moment, these are the first storms that are developing in the Barclay. Um, but we would expect as it gets warmer during the afternoon that we will have more storms developing through that area. Okay. In the top end, is there much to report at the moment? Not much at all, Matt. Um We've, uh, yeah, we've got a bit of dry air in the atmosphere um, that's sort of putting a, a lid on things a little bit. Um, we've had a few showers around the north coast earlier this morning at the moment on the radar. Most of the activity is offshore, just starting to get a 
couple of little um, showers starting to develop on the Tiwi Islands. Um, but really today, um, expecting it to be fairly coastal, uh, not around the north coastal areas um, in terms of the showers and storm development, basically anywhere where the, the sea breezes are penetrating a bit further inland, bringing some moisture in. Um, with m- more showers and storms expected south of the top end today. So mm. particularly, as I mentioned, the Barclay, um, the Simpson district and um, possibly getting into the Carpentaria district today as well. It was suggested that the top end could see a monsoonal burst towards the back end of this week. Is that still on the cards? Yeah, it's still um, still. Uh, looking like that will be the case. So we've got a very weak trough at the moment over the um, the northern Gulf of Carpentaria that is expected to slowly drift southwards. Um, and as that moves closer to the top end, late in the week uh, across the weekend, it's, um, it's looking like it will be developing into a monsoon trough across the weekend. Uh, so, yeah, that will bring further rainfall for the top-end areas um, beginning from from later this week where we will start to see those showers and storms increasing initially um, and then, yeah, potential for some heavy falls as well associated with those. OK, because in terms of the national map, the big features, it seems, are Cyclone Freddy way off the WA coast and a, a tropical low that seems destined to become a cyclone as well way off the Queensland coast. I assume that is having an impact on on what's happening here in the Territory. Yeah, that's right. Sort of um, stuck in the the quiet area in the middle at the moment. So, yeah, definitely quite active out in the Indian Ocean and in the Coral Sea right now. Um, And that's due to the Madden-Julian Oscillation, for those who are familiar with that. Oh, we love our MJO. We love it, yes. Yes, yep, yep. yep. So that is in the area at the moment. Mm. So that's Hence all the action. Yeah. That's it, yeah. So um, active MJO, but um, not so much over the the top end area. Mm. Um, But yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens um, later in the weekend, over the weekend, with the monsoon trough potentially developing. Yep, and so our audience knows Cyclone Freddy in the west is just heading west. Expected yep. to become a Category 3, but is just heading out into the deep, deep blue. And the one over in Queensland, again, expected to... Become, well, it's forecast to become a Category 3 system. And, well, it's a little bit closer to the coast, but at this stage, not expected to to head inland is that right yeah that's right so both of those systems staying away from the coast but um you wouldn't want to live on norfolk island though i reckon it might get a bit blowy around norfolk yeah yeah that's right so um yeah a little bit more of a risk for them but um for those people around queensland um a little bit less of a risk but you could still get some some big waves coming um, across from from that system. Yep. And sorry, Beck, a question from the audience. This is from Paul in Humpty Doo. Uh, can you ask the bomb about the possible cyclone on the west coast heading further west to another possible cyclone out there? What happens if two cyclones collide? Says Paul. Ah, oh, they don't actually collide. There's. Um, there's this phenomenon that they call the Fujiwara effect, um, which you can look it up if you like. But basically, uh, when cyclones get close to each other, they 
kind of do this little do-si-do bit of a spin around each other so they don't actually collide but but often one will become a lot weaker than the other one so one will dominate that little dance right um yeah so the dance of the fujiwara i love it that's yeah, it yeah. <laughs> okay thank you so much for that Beck. have a lovely no afternoon worries. you too thanks Matt. rebecca patrick there at the weather bureau paul thank you for your question 0487 991057 is our text here at the Country Hour, and it is 12 past one. Now, we all know how much damage feral buffalo do to the NT's environment. They mess up the wetlands and, of course, belch out plenty of methane. Every year, there are various culling programs, but they are expensive, and the buffalo herd size in the Territory continues to rise. So what if people could earn valuable carbon credits by getting rid of the buffalo. Hugh Davies is part of a team at Charles Darwin University who has been looking at this possibility. He explained the research to Victoria Ellis. Uh, So buffalo are ruminant animals, which means that they emit large amounts of methane through their digestion. And methane is a really potent greenhouse gas. And um, currently feral buffalo numbers are increasing across northern Australia, meaning their emissions are too. So the whole idea of our research was that if we can keep their numbers under control, we can avoid greenhouse gas emissions, potentially generating carbon credits, um, which um, might then be able to be sold and make money. So how many buffalo would um, generate one carbon credit? How many would have to be killed? So one adult buffalo, uh, the methane emitted through their digestion each year is about 78 kilos, um, but because methane is such a potent greenhouse gas, that's actually equivalent to over two tonnes of carbon dioxide. Yeah, so if that buffalo was not in the landscape, then every year there would be two tonnes of carbon dioxide less. Um, so, yeah, if that buffalo wasn't there, um, that means each year there's um, a potentially two carbon credits generated every year. And what sort of people who could actually be involved in controlling the buffalo and doing that culling? Well, I guess it's any landowner, decision makers that have a problem with large feral ruminants such as buffalo. Examples from northern Australia are you know, in, Indigenous landowners, there's pastoralists. Um, at this stage, it's just a proof of concept Um, So there's lots more work and research that needs to be done. Um, But one of the outcomes from the research that we hope is that it just stimulates more um, discussion and research in this area. A fair bit of buffalo culling happens through aerial culling. But in the research, you guys uh, took that into account, though, didn't you, with the helicopters, the emissions from helicopters versus the emissions from buffalo? Could you tell me about that? Yeah, no worries. So we combined estimates of greenhouse gas emissions from buffalo digestion with simulations of buffalo population control. And we were really interested in estimating how much methane uh, could be avoided through buffalo control. And because we're talking about vast remote landscapes, buffalo are generally mostly controlled through aerial culling campaigns. But we know that helicopters, the use of helicopters releases large amounts of greenhouse gas. Um, So to get an accurate estimate of the net abatement 
that would be possible, we needed to take that into account. So, yeah, we estimated uh, the the amount of helicopter flying time that would be required to reduce these populations. And from that, we were able to work out how much greenhouse gas is emitted from the, uh, from those helicopters. And so what would actually have to happen to take this idea from an idea and turn it into something that happens in practice? I guess the first step would be to um, start addressing a lot of the uncertainties in it, like our research, because not much work has been done in this space. We had to make assumptions. Um, there are plenty of uncertainties in there. Um, the first step in my mind would be to address those, um, to really knuckle down an accurate understanding of the potential for this kind of work. And then the next step would be to try and come up with a policy framework around that. And then, yeah, I guess it comes down to uh, politicians. Overall, how are you feeling after having done this research and, and the findings that you did find? Look, it's it's a really interesting space. And as I mentioned, uh, we hope that one of the outcomes from this research is to stimulate more discussion and research uh, because we believe it's a really exciting uh, possibility. And the idea that feral animal control um, instead of being this massive cost, which is the reason that it's often not attempted or if it is, it's only done for a short amount of time, especially through remote areas. Um, the thought that that could change and people could generate money off this um, in doing so, creating this ongoing incentive to keep feral animal populations under control that's really exciting because not only can people make money through this, um, but the ecological benefits could be massive. Um, we've got a real problem in Australia with large feral ruminants. Think of camels, deer, goats, um, and yeah, buffalo. So the idea that we can start getting some of those populations under control in a way that generates money, um, it, it's really exciting. That is Hugh Davies, a researcher at Charles Darwin University, talking buffalo and carbon credits with Victoria Ellis. The current price for an Australian carbon credit union unit is sitting at $37. It is 18 past one here on the Country Hour. We're hitting the paddocks of Catherine next to learn about the advantages of no-till farming. But first, let's have a tune. Uh, this is Miranda Lambert on ABC Radio. Farmers around the Catherine region have been getting into paddocks to learn more about the benefits of no-till farming. Now, if this is a term that you've never heard of before, if you don't know what no-till farming, zero-till farming is, it's essentially about sowing a crop into a paddock without disturbing the soil. So instead of ploughing up a paddock, you just drill the seed in and it grows through the remains of the previous crop. Territory Natural Resource Management is running a demonstration trial for producers and is also using this to show how legumes can improve soil health. Max Rowley went along to check it out. We are actually putting some seed up. And you can see, you can hardly you can hardly see where you've been. So if you're if you're doing a big paddock, you need GPS 
to find out or else you go overlapping where, where you've already been. Yeah, good day, Max. I'm Fergal Ogara. I um, run a small private consultancy at uh, Northern Tropical Agriculture based out of Darwin. Take me through what you were doing today. Just demonstrating um, a zero-till planter in establishing legumes into a green unkilled sward, so um, sort of no-kill, no-till situation. And I went through how we inoculate the legumes, which is a very important aspect of legume production because legumes, the the beauty of legumes is that they fix atmospheric nitrogen uh, and they only do that in association with rhizobium bacteria. So unless you've got the right rhizobium with the specific legume, you don't get that uh, nitrogen fixation. So basically this was all about getting nitrogen into the soil though and it's a particular technique of, of doing that? Well it's all about enhancing your pastures really um, and getting legumes into your pastures with, with basically a minimum of fuss just um, uh, planting directly into a, an existing pasture but augmenting it with uh, very productive tropical legumes like uh, butterfly pea, uh, centrosema and, and cow pea, which which can increase your can double or even triple the protein content in your in your existing pasture. If you've got a, a grass dominant pasture with very little legume in it, this zero till method of putting legumes in can can uh, not only increase the biomass but inc- increase the, the the feed quality and and the protein quality. And that's without protein, you're not going to get the the live weight gain from your from your animals. More protein, fatter cattle. Yeah, better cattle, more muscle. Um, yeah, better cattle, happier cattle. But also, you know, improved soil, better soil, uh, healthier soil, more diverse soil, and 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 also helping to um, increase the carbon content. Um, the nitrogen um, con- contributes to the fertility of the soil, which increases the biomass of the grasses, which which um, uses that that nitrogen. And when, when all um, species are growing happily together, well, what you get is a, a happy biological system and an increase in soil carbon. What kind of system does this best apply to? Is it a cattle producer? Is it a farmer growing crops like cotton or sorghum? Or Who, who should be using this? Oh, well, no-till has no been around for years. It's been around for probably 40 years. Um, and it, it, it came into prominence with the, with the invention or the the introduction of the herbicide glyphosate. So no-till is practiced all over the world. It's, it's, um, it's, it's practiced uh, in Europe, in the States, in South, South Central America, um, and um, obviously in the wheat belts and the, and the, the, um, crop, the major crop-growing areas of Australia. But it has particular relevance up here in, in the Territory where, um, where we get such intense... And, and violent um, thunderstorms and rainfall events and, and monsoons. I mean, um, while, while we all love the rain, um, there's nothing worse uh, than a, a monsoon or a, a tropical storm on a bare cultivated soil. So, um, I mean, zero till we've, we've, you know, people, there's farmers in, in, in the Catherine Daly region practicing zero till <coughs> and, and have been for a number of years. But where we're, we're branching out a bit is to use zero till in a situation where we're not using any herbicide and we're we're sowing legumes we're augmenting 
pasture with with legumes. So it really has good relevance in the in the NT for protecting your soil and building building the biology of the soil and our and our nutrition. I mean, given the increase in fertilizer prices over the last two years, if you can get um, 50 to 100 kgs of um, nitrogen equivalent from a legume crop, that sort of represents something like 100. And 130 to 200 dollars a hectare at, at current prices and uh, that's that's stuff you don't have to buy from a bag of fertilizer and put it out so you know it, it's it's highly relevant that the, the zero till expands into into all aspects of farming in, especially in the Nor- northern territory and the tropics and if you're not spraying before you plant in this kind of system how is what you're planting actually competing with the you know the other grasses in that system or whatever else is growing there now that's that's a really good question because that's as i said traditionally zero till is used in conjunction with glyphosate to kill the existing sward before planting so that you're going into a a clean fully killed sward so there's no competition in in what we're um, and in what we're demonstrating and what we've seen today on Jeremy and Amy Trembath's place is that it works very successfully growing into, sowing into a, an existing sward and uh, that, that's just facilitated by um, managing that sward beforehand, either, either slashing the sward or prefer, preferentially grazing it, putting a, um, a mob of stock on, getting the, the sward down to a an acceptable level a couple of inches high and then drilling drilling straight into it and because when you drill straight into it in, in the right moisture that that seed is in a very 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 good environment with moisture surrounded by moisture covered by mulch and and germinates you know within a matter of days you know it, it might be up in two to three you'll see it emerging in two two to three days and whatever moisture is there is kept in the soil so it's 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 a really good environment so that you know large seeded legumes really do um, compete quite well and then they get on top and and um, and then the grass the grass follows suit yep so with the cost of fertilizer at the moment do you think we'll be starting to see more of this in the territory Oh, definitely. There was a good roll up here today at um, Amy's and, and Jeremy's farm, and I mean we've seen some really good pastures here that were zero tilled. And I think the take-home message was the health and the biology of the soil, but also the the amount of really good quality biomass that's been produced here and and been grazed repeatedly this season. Um, so I think I think there'll be a lot of people go home today and. And seriously think about um, adapting um, or even trialling some of this stuff. That is Fergal O'Gara from Northern Tropical Agriculture speaking to Max Rowley at that field day near Catherine. It is time now in the country hour to head to the sale yards with all the latest prices out of Roma. Here is Sam Hart. Good afternoon. Roma Combined Agents yarded 3,700 this week, down by 1,500 head. Most cattle were drawn from the local areas alongside two consignments from western New South Wales. Overall quality was fairly mixed and while restockers were most active on medium weight cattle, most deer categories eased. However, heavy prime cattle lifted on last week. Young grown steers to the processor lifted to 377.2 to average 370, while heavy grown steers sold to 365.2, averaging around 330 cents. Fewer numbers of heavy feeder steers sold to 406.2 to average around 385, 
Restock has paid up to 470.2 for the better quality pens of medium weight steers to average around 420 cents. Uh, Restock of steers 280 to 330 kilos made to 526.2 to average around 469. And lightweight restock of steers eased on last week, selling to 566.2 to average 482. Medium weight heifers sold to 386.2 at the time of this interim report. Thank you for that, Sam. In the live export trade, feeder steers to Indonesia fetching around $4.20, $4.30 a kilo. I am told there's a couple of ships out of Darwin this week. The Eastern Young Cattle Indicator is sitting at 761 cents a kilo carcass weight. And over in Queensland, the big country Brahmin sale is on. And there's some big money being paid for not only bulls, but also semen. I'll tell you more about that on tomorrow's program. Keep it rural.